The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 21 and reading through to the end of the chapter. You'll find that on page 822 of your pew Bible. Matthew 16 beginning at verse 21. This is the word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever should save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. (coughs) Almighty God, we come before you in the frailty of our frame, of physical weakness, of spiritual weakness, of all manner of distractions, tiredness, illness. And Lord, we plead with you, have mercy upon us to reveal our Saviour. And to reveal our response to that Saviour. Be pleased, Father in heaven, to bless the words of my mouth. And to bless the hearing of all our ears. So that these words might sink down from our ears to our hearts. Producing in us faith, repentance, self-denial and love for you. Be with us and give us aid that we need, Lord God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in the last chapters of Matthew's Gospel thus far, we've been seeing how the Jews, especially the Jewish establishment, have systematically rejected the testimony of the Messiah and rejected the Messiah himself. And yet it was revealed to Peter and the disciples that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the Messiah himself. But now, in Matthew's Gospel, there is a slight change of tack a change of direction. We see this in the words of verse 21, from that time, Jesus now moves into a different phase of his ministry, a phase where he is going to speak more overtly and explicitly of his suffering and his death. He's speaking about his office as Messiah, that there is a necessity that he should suffer and die. 
The Messiah, he's going to teach his disciples, was not going to appear in this blaze of glory and cast down all their enemies, but rather glory for the Messiah must be preceded by suffering and death. There was to be the cross before there was to be the crown. And our Lord builds on this with respect to us, the Christian As it was with him, the Messiah, so too must it be with us if we are Messiah's followers. There was a cost for Christ and there is a cost for the Christian. And those really are our points today. Verse 21, we see witnessing, we see the cost for Christ, which is, of course, the cross itself. No greater cost, the cost for Christ. Then in verse 24, we see the cost for the disciple carrying our own cross. It's a passage about cost, what it cost our Savior, and what it must necessarily cost us if we are to be counted among the Savior's people. Firstly, then, the cost for Christ, Christ, which is, of course, nothing less than the, the cross itself. The cost is clear. Verse 21, the Messiah, the son of the living God, must suffer many things, be killed and be raised. The change in the passage is clear. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. In broad allusions, perhaps uh, not, not overtly, he has taught them of the necessity of his death. But from this point on, Matthew sixteen twenty one, there are four distinct and clear, explicit passages of teaching where our Lord says he must suffer and die. His change in approach is quite clear. As the day of his own death fast approaches, he is preparing his disciples for that eventuality. The Messiah must suffer and die. And the message he gives them is a striking message. Indeed, in our passage, it's one that Peter cannot presently bear. Calvin summarizes this message of suffering and death in this way. He says, It was necessary to inform the disciples that Christ must commence his reign not with gaudy display, not with the magnificence of riches, not with the loud applause of this world, but with an ignominious death. That's the announcement. The glory of Christ is seen firstly in an ignominious death. That's right. Think on that. The son of the living God, whom Peter had just confessed to be the Christ, the Messiah. He says, I must suffer many things and be killed. It's a staggering teaching by anyone's reckoning. That Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, great David's greatest son, the Messiah, the Christ anointed of God, had to suffer and to die. The one who would bring righteousness, justice, deliverance, redemption, salvation, equity, the one speaking, must suffer many things and die. 
And Jesus makes no mention of trying to stop this. Indeed, he says, this thing must happen. It must happen. And we ask ourselves, why must it happen? Why did the Son of God have to condescend so greatly as it were to step down off his royal throne and then be nailed to a cross at Calvary? Why did this have to happen? The answer is simple, friends. This is the only mechanism available whereby God could redeem sinners. The only mechanism available whereby God could save us. Because no other sacrifice was worthy for paying for our sins. No other life and sacrifice was worthy to fulfill all righteousness and thus grant us righteousness. No other sacrifice could appease the wrath of God against sin. Friends, this was the only way by which you, dear Christian, could be saved. And what great cost. Charles Simeon, the 19th century Anglican, wrote this. The sufferings which awaited Jesus were such as no finite creature could have borne. Too great for you or me to suffer and face. And yet what would Jesus do? Listen carefully. He would willingly, voluntarily lovingly and humbly go to Calvary's cross. Friends, that voluntary element of Christ's work is at the heart of Christianity, that he willingly went to the cross. For God to punish someone else for another's sins would be an act of injustice, just as it would for us, unless that individual went voluntarily to that work. Christ went of his own accord. No one takes my life from me, he said, but I lay it down of my own accord. He willingly went to the cross to take our sins. But Peter, he's just not there quite yet, is he? (laughs) He can't quite grasp the reality that this great Messiah should suffer and die. Verse 22, Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He doesn't know what he said, does he? We can have sympathy for Peter in many ways. He's a product of his times. The common conception amongst the Jews of Messiah is that he would come and vanquish their enemies, starting with the Romans. But the Romans were by no means the worst of their enemies. Peter is vehemently opposed against this idea that Messiah should suffer and die. Vehemently opposed. Far be it from you, O Lord. It's a may this never be approach. It's incomprehensible to him that Messiah should end in this way, should suffer this fate. After all, he's seen the signs and wonders of the previous chapters. He's seen those people fed who had no food. He's seen the blind receive sight, the lame walk. He has seen evidence of the glory of Messiah. But he's not understood that part of the glory of Messiah 
is to suffer and die at Calvary's cross. He's not understood that for Messiah and for Messiah's disciples, there must be the cross before the crown. And at this interjection, Christ in uncommon terms, the likes of which we never see with his disciples, turns to Peter, rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. What a strange thing for our Lord to say. Strange if we don't understand what's going on here. I want you to think back to our Lord's temptations with Satan in the early chapters of the gospel. What was Satan trying to get our Lord to do? He was seeking to to offer him another way by which he could achieve his goals. A way which was absent of the cross. Find another way. Find a painless way. Look, bow down to me, Satan said. I'll give you all the cities of the world. There's another way, he said. What's Peter doing? He's saying there's another way. Far be it from you, Jesus, that you should suffer and die. The temptation is to Christ to spare himself the cross, to spare himself the shame, to give in to an ungodly option so that he could preserve himself. And when Peter, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, the words in the Greek are staggeringly similar to Matthew 4.10, when Jesus says to Satan, begone, Satan. Why? Because the temptation is the same. He's not calling Peter Satan in that respect. But he's saying you're putting the stumbling block, a hindrance in front of me to carrying out my mission. And our Lord diagnoses why Peter has said this. Verse 23, he says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's thinking of Messiah, while not altogether wrong, was at least in this respect earthly, carnal. You're setting your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. Though you've confessed me as the Christ, the Son of the living God, you have yet to understand what that fully means, and it means the cost of the cross. That's what it means for Messiah, the cost of the cross. That's what it is, friends, to think in a heavenly fashion, not an earthly fashion. The cost for Jesus is the cross. Friends, think for a moment, just briefly, on our Lord Jesus here and his many temptations, both from without with Satan and within, as it were, from his own people. Consider the burden our Savior bore for us. He rejected the offer of an easier way out. And he took the path to Calvary. Just let that sink in. By faith, he rejected the easier options as being ungodly and set his mind, as we read elsewhere in the Gospels, he set his mind, his face, toward Jerusalem. The love of Jesus for lost sinners and his faith in his Father's commission and in his resurrection is here revealed. There's a dogged determination in Jesus. 
to go to the cross. Listen to Charles Simeon again. He writes, when entreated to shun the cross, he not only refused to listen to the advice, but reproved it with a severity that he never used on any other occasion. And he writes as if our Lord is speaking and says, what? Spare myself? Avoid the sufferings that are necessary to expiate the guilt of men and to satisfy the demands of law and justice? How can I leave mankind perish in their sins? I cannot endure the thought, and I account him who suggests it to me as no better than Satan himself. We're getting a glimpse, aren't we, here of the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. His commitment and absolute trust in the commission God had given him. I've come to do the will of him who sent me. And his love towards sinners. He said no to the easy way. And he took the way of the cross. Our Lord had abundant opportunities in his life to dodge Calvary. Abundant attempts by Satan, even by his own disciples. But by faith he said, not my will, but thine be done. By faith we can say this, Jesus took up his cross. By faith, he offered himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and win us to God, to deliver us from sins. He took up his cross, even while facing the shame and the death of the cross. He took up his cross. And then he turns to us and says also, but you must do the same. You must also take up your cross. The cost for Christ was to go to the cross. The cost for us is to take up our cross. Verse 24 following. Just as there is a cost for the Savior, there is also a cost for the Christian. I want us to hear that this morning, every one of us. There is a cost to being a Christian. What's good for the master is good for the servant. Then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To come after Christ is to be his disciple. It is to love him, it's to be united to him by faith, it's to walk in the path that he walked, to, be, to come after Christ is to be loyal to him. Not to be loyal to self, but to be loyal to Christ. It's to adopt his teaching, it's to adopt his person, it's to adopt his calling upon our lives. And to do this, we have to do what? Deny ourselves. Friends, do you hear that? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself. It is to deny oneself as Lord of your life. To deny oneself, that is to subjugate your own desires to the commands of God. 
Our Lord says that with denying oneself comes the taking up of a cross. Think, think of Jesus saying those words. It's a very poignant moment in the gospel. Our Lord did not stumble onto these words. You must take up your cross. He's speaking with absolute knowledge that he must die on a cross. That he must die on the cursed tree. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, said the scripture. He knew he was going to be nailed to Calvary's cross. Poignancy beyond our conception. And yet he says, you must take up your cross. He says his disciples must forsake the world, deny self, as he carried and bore his own cross, so too must we as Christians. We must forsake the world, resist the devil, put sin to death, willing to sacrifice what we want for the sake of trust and obedience to God Almighty. Jesus is telling us we must live a self-sacrificial life. We can't insist on our own way in life. That's not the way of Christ. It's a central tenet, friends, of Christian living. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. We are to live as we are called to live. Do we do that, friends? In our families, husbands and wives, are you living for each other or are you expecting the other to serve you and your needs? Children and parents, parents and children, are we seeking to honor each other in our relationships or are we demanding our own way? Church members, are you serving this church actively or do you come to take from this church? Are you servers or takers? Are we seeking, friends, to steadily and systematically remove our own agenda from our lives and replace it with God's agenda of faith and obedience? In other words, friends, are we giving up the things that we like to do in order that we might serve God in an honoring fashion? There's much that could be said about taking up the cross. But time does not allow us. Friends, are we willing to deny ourselves? To say no. Whether it's sin, whether it's ambition, employment, reputation. Are we willing to say, I would rather follow King Jesus than pursue these things? And Jesus, in his mercy, provides three reasons why we should do as he's told us. Not just because he's told us to do it, but three reasons, verse 25, 26, verse 27. You'll notice he says, take up your cross and follow me, verse 24. Then verse 25, 26, and 27 all begin with the word for. Three reasons, each building upon the other, as to why we as Christians ought to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Firstly, in verse 25, he asks us, what is the priority of your life? What's the priority of your life? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Think of the examples in Scripture. 
Cain, Esau, Ahab, Jezebel, Judas, Hymenaeus and Alexander, the list goes on of those who sought to, as it were, save their own lives, live according to their own plan in rebellion to God. What happened to them? Many of them lost their lives, as it were, prematurely. And they certainly lost everlasting life. The opposite of that are the Josephs of Scripture, the Judas of Scripture, the Good Samaritan, willing to deny self, willing to deny comfort and ease and put themselves out, even lay down their lives for others. Of course, the grand example is Jesus. We're talking about Christ-like behavior. To take up the cross is to love God more than our own lives so that we might inherit eternal life. Verse 26, another question, how much is your soul worth? Think on that, friends. How much is your soul worth? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The answer is there's nothing more precious than your soul. What shall a man give in return for his soul? We've got nothing. We've got nothing. We won't get to judgment day and say, but Lord, look at all the things I did. Let me into heaven. Nothing can repay the debt of our own souls. Nothing can purchase the worth of your soul. Friends, do you hear this? You are worth an inestimable amount of riches, of power, of leisure, of all the things this world has to offer. There is no comparison, the value of your soul, to the things of this world. Which makes us think, does it not? How much damage do we do to ourselves when we are in sin? How much damage do we do, how much soul damage do we do? We're talking about the value of the things of this world in sin and the value of our eternal souls. When we choose the path of sin and temptation, and make no mistake, no one makes you sin. No one makes me sin. It's an activity of my heart, of your heart. When we choose the path of sin, we're choosing the path of self-injury, of soul injury. John Owen has a long section on this very issue. He says, as if we could look into the depths of hell and see all the people in terrible anguish and anger. And he says their anger is directed at two things, their tempters and the fact they gave into their temptation. That's what their anguish will be about. They yielded to sin. They valued the things of this world more than their eternal souls until they got the payment of it. Friend, dear friend, your soul is of inestimable value. Far more value than anything the world, any relationship, any friendship, any job opportunity, any bank balance, anything in this life can offer you. Because there is a day coming, thirdly, says our Lord, when he will come in judgment, verse 27, and render each man according to their deeds. 
For the Son of Man is going to come, verse 27, with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Judgment will be according to works. What have you done? What have you done? And if you're outside of Christ now, or you're drifting away from Christ, and you think on that last day you'll get before him and say, look at what I've done, he'll sweep it away. It simply won't suffice. It's not enough. It's not good enough. It's not valuable enough. Nothing you've done or can do will suffice for salvation. You will only stand in the presence of God and of Christ eternally if you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, having received him by faith alone. There is a day coming when Christ will come in his glory and render to each person according to what he has done. Self-abandonment, self-denial is all about leaving all the dross of our life behind and clinging to the one of infinite value, Jesus Christ. Receiving him by faith, holding fast to him by faith, seeking holiness and obedience by faith, walking as he walked, as he calls us to walk. There has to be in the Christian a determined mindset of sacrificing the things of this world in favor of the things of the world to come. Friends, you must grasp this reality. It's a simple equation in that sense. To find life in Christ eternally is now to have a life of self-denial and taking up the cross. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He is drawing an unbreakable line and connection between himself and his own experience and the Christian and their experience. This is really good news. Jesus is drawing an inseparable connection between himself and the Christian. Notice what he said earlier uh, about his, his, what he must suffer. Yes, he must suffer many things. Yes, he must be killed, but then he must be raised the third day. Peter didn't have ears for that. He just showed suffering and death. It's understandable. And Jesus is speaking of a life in the Christian which looks rather like his own life. There's no coincidence here. He's speaking actually, underpinning all this, is one of the most precious doctrines of the Christian faith. The doctrine we call union with Christ. Union with Christ means that we and our Savior are bound together in an inseparable fashion by faith which is the gift of God so that what is true of our Lord Jesus Christ becomes true of each one of us dear Christians here today not in exact terms of course we're not going to go to the cross for the salvation of the lost but we are called to take up the cross we are called to deny ourselves that union is unbreakable do you hear that good news 
irrespective of all the changes, the failures, the sins of this life, if you are truly a Christian, you are inseparably united to Jesus Christ by faith, which is the gift of God. So it's not the strength of your faith which binds you to God. And to Christ is God's gift, which is a perfect gift. In other words, you cannot be separated from the love of Christ. You cannot be separated from the person of Christ. You cannot be separated, we say, even from the experience of Christ. As he denied himself, so too must you. As he went to the cross, so too, in a sense, must you take up your cross. Yes, you must suffer many things while in this life. Maybe even be killed for the sake of the Savior. But you shall also be raised from the dead. That's what our Lord is alluding to and speaking of in the last verse. He says, verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Don't think second coming there. It's easy to think of that because he's just spoken about the second coming. Don't principally think of the second coming when it says about the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's now. He's about to be transfigured. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to be laid in the tomb. He's about to be raised from the dead and appear to them again. He's about to ascend into heaven. That is the kingdom come. And he says to them, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see it all. Some of them would taste death before they saw all this. Judas, the traitor, the rebel. He did not see Christ in his risen and ascended glory. He promises here that those disciples united to him by faith would see the glory and the inglory of his death, but also the glory of his resurrection and ascension. And dear Christian, he promises you something very similar now. Look around you. This is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven in our midst. Here. And in other faithful churches in this city. And in our state. In our country. And throughout the whole world. The kingdom of heaven has come. More evidence than you could possibly want that Christ has come in his kingdom and his kingdom will last forever. Friends, even though we're going to die, unless our Lord comes again, even though we die, we shall see and we shall be in that eternal kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ will reign there forever and ever. And we're told we shall reign with him. The command is this. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And the promise is this. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, teach us to mortify the flesh each day. To put behind us that which so easily ensnares us. Oh, be pleased, Father in heaven, we cry out, you have mercy upon us. And enable us by, by your spirit and through faith to seek first the kingdom of heaven.
Bless us, we pray. Work richly in us, we ask. Faith, trust, repentance, joy, self-denial, that we might enter that eternal kingdom. We bless you and magnify you. In Jesus' name, amen.